It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and it is February 1st, which means it is the first day of Black History Month. And we are talking to the CEO and founder of Ready Set, which is a diversity and inclusion training firm that helps major corporations be more uh, productive about racism. Yvonne Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. So good morning. And my first question is, you know, some people think race and racism and, and gender, misogyny or transphobia, these topics, they're taboo in the workplace. Mm. So just to, as the first question, is that wrong to, to even assume that these topics are off limits in the workplace because somehow, you know, talking about them is not professional? Right. I don't, I don't think they're off limits just because we can't leave our identities behind when we step into a workplace. And I think, you know, we have to be careful about conflating what is uncomfortable with what is taboo, right? Or what we nope. may have an experience doing with what is unacceptable. And I think so long as we have racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism in the workplace, we have to talk about it because yep. there are impediments to how people show up at work and they affect the impact that companies have in the world. I think one of the questions that I have, especially now as uh, people are doing a, a remote work, a hybrid work, there's less of a chance as you're looking for employment to get a sense of the culture in the office. Like you don't walk past everyone's mm -hmm. cubicles. You don't see what kinds of conversations are happening in a conference room. You're sort of like, I, I would be put off if I walked into a workplace and did not see a single not white face. But I may not have the opportunity at this point to know that. Like, how should people be on guard against um, getting themselves into a racist workplace or like what are the signs that people should be looking for <laughs> that this is you know that that this is either a place that handles these issues well or doesn't yeah I mean so uh, same <laughs> you know, it's, uh, like we all want to avoid it I will say though having been a professional black woman for a little bit of time you know you you it's you can walk into a physical space and Quite often in many professional environments, I'm gonna be the only black woman there, regardless of the extent of their internalized racism or sexism or, or, or both, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I kind of, I, I, I don't over-index on that too much because I've, I've been fooled, I'll just say it like that. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, in my book, I talk about the signs, you know, the signs to look for in a racist workplace. And I say, mm -hmm. like, like, let's just start from the presumption that because you know, work is situated at the intersection of all these other racist systems, our education system, you know, whether that's elementary school education, higher education, when we were working in place, in person, you know, systems around where we live. You know, inherently, the workplace is racist, and even if it wasn't situated within those systems, it would be. Um, but, you know, some places are more racist, more harmful than others. So what do we look for? You know, I say, say to people, look at where power is distributed in your organization, particularly formal power, right? So if you 
see that, you know, even if they have all the diversity programs in the world, but all the color is like sort of at that junior level and the leadership is all white or boards are all white, you know, you're probably dealing with um, a company that's more racist than, than other organizations. If white people tend to be heard, recognized, that's another sign. Thinking about the kind of work we get, right? Because we can get into organizations in the same role as a white counterpart. But if that white counterpart is getting all the prime assignments, plum projects on the path to promotion in a different way than we are, that's racist. You know, thinking about pay disparity. And I say, you know, we look for the uncontrolled and controlled pay gap. You know, that being what is the certain the person who's working the same level, same function, same job as me, what are they making? But also then what what do the black people or brown people in my organization tend to make vis-a-vis -vis the white folks in my organization? Those are all sort of places that I would say you can start looking and get a sense. And typically it is rare that I see a company that where there's not racial disparity in at least one of those areas. One of the other things that makes me think about is all the time, I mean, as a, we're both 40 years old, Jess and I, and so, mm -hmm. you know, what, what comes with that oh, me is, too. It, 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 oh, <laughs> yeah, us. shout out to the 40 year olds. I <laughs> you mean, can listen. sit with us. <laughs> yeah, all I right, love it. Yes. I love it. Um, because, you know, it, it, when you turn 40, you're like, oh, I'm like, actually fully grown, like, I'm, I'm full, full oh, yeah. grown. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I can reflect on a lot of those experiences that happened in my 20s in corporate spaces and be like, oh, that was a microaggression. <laughs> I get mm -hmm. it now. Um, and, and a lot of things sort of you can look at them through a different lens with more experience. And one of the things I think a lot about now is the, in my early 20s, I worked um, at a large law firm that is um, ironically – uh, the inspiration for the evil law firm in the movie The Pelican Brief. This is a true story. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> um, if you watch that movie, there is a close-up shot of the address of the fictional law firm in the movie. It is the real address of the law firm I worked at in my early 20s. Oh, uh, subtle. It's the same. They got that uh, through. Okay. Same address. Actually, it's the same font. It's actually the same font. Amazing. <laughs> so it's like clear that it's, they're talking about uh, this particular firm. Um, and it was at that firm where I really, I was like, whoa, this is a micro, that's what a microaggression is, right? Even in my educational upbringing, there are microaggressions, but you're not labeling it in the same way. So, you know, folks walking past you in the hallway, um, telling you to smile, that was an, that was a, yeah. a frequent one that persists, um, which in the pandemic, I don't have to deal with. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, not w wanting to wear blue. Um, was one that I, I found out early because if you wore a blue shirt and you were a black person in this law firm, people assumed you were the male person in this oh, law God. firm. What? So to, your, to your point about um, where is the power situated, so most of the people yeah. that worked in the mail room in this particular law firm were black and they wore blue mm -hmm. button-down shirts as their sort of mm -hmm. uni informal uniform. And one day I wore a blue button-down shirt and people don't even ask they just started handing me mail. Oh my in the god! Hallway. Um, they would just <laughs> would hand me it. mail. Did you um, take it? No, I was like, I'm oh. I'm a legal assistant <laughs> on the Enron case, sir, with this partner. Get you know, like, and I and I would be offended. But then I was like, number one, I shouldn't be offended because there's nothing wrong with being a male person. But number two, mm -hmm. they don't see me. Actually, that was one of those real realizations that like, oh, you actually don't see me as an individual. 
you only see black person, blue shirt, that's male person. That's what like is going through your brain. And so you just hand mm-hmm. me mail, like, you know, where, where people, if you're wearing like a white shirt, people think you're the caterer and they ask you like to get them a drink. Um, it, it's those mm-hmm. sort of microaggressions. I think that now as I'm 40, I look at them and I can identify them accurately and, and say, that's what that is. How, what are some of the, the types of things, um, you know, that people can, of all backgrounds, not just the people that they're happening to, but of all backgrounds can, can recognize and identify label, um, as you know, those daily microaggressions so that we can like stop them. I would like them to stop, please. Yeah. So I, yeah, first, I would, first I would step is like identifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so far. First of all, I'm sorry that happened to you. Second of all, as a, a former lawyer, I just, uh, you know, in addition to just how um, thoughtless that was, it was also like a breach of confidentiality. <laughs> just hand him mail. Here. You should have taken so the mail. You're doing your job worse. <laughs> like, like, how do you I know I even work here? No. Yeah, see, the 40 year old Zerlina would have taken the mail, gone back, opened it all, seen what she had, figured out where to go from there. <laughs> exactly. That's very funny. Shout out to the 40s. Um, That's funny. So I, yeah, I, you know, I think part of the function of microaggressions we have to remember is to like sow doubt in a person's mind, both in the mind of the observer and the person on the receiving end. So, you know, I always kind of say like, you know, in these formal situations or corporate situations, sometimes identifying racism is like trying to catch water. You know what I mean? Like, yes. like oh, I'm not being racist. I just like to oh talk God, about people's this is hair. So true. You know, it's like it can be it can be really um be really difficult. But you know, when we think about um, uh, microaggressions, I first like, tell people to kind of like look at the impact. Like, what is this particular action? What impact does it have? Who tends to be on the other receiving end of actions like this? And what does it do to that person? To how they show up in spaces their self-esteem, their level of engagement, et cetera. Because sometimes, you know, if you, you can pick up on that. And, and, and there are like microaggressions you can look for, right? Like the idea, um, you know, that, that you would be a male person was a stereotype confirming kind of microaggression around the position of Black people within your organization. And there's a myriad of stereotypes that I'm not going to list out here because sometimes even hearing them uh, can be... Uh, Mm -hmm. uncomfortable but I feel like if somebody just coincidentally keeps saying things that uh, reflect certain stereotypes if somebody tends to talk about a person's appearance or presentation or innate ability more than they talk about concrete aspects of their performance if there are patterns that conform to societal patterns of marginalization that this person engages in, just like you're watching somebody, uh, you know, engage in a microaggression, there's always a question about what do you do about it. Um, so, you know, my book, I try to be really practical. Um, I think we, I, I don't want people to, I want people to stay and fight, right? I don't want them to get fired. I don't want, and I, particularly if you're a black or brown person, I don't want to add to the harm that you're already experiencing in the workplace. Like for me, that's always been top priority. And I know bringing up this stuff like results in harm, like we get targeted. So the, the first thing I usually advise is like, make sure that when you're tackling this kind of behavior, this pattern of behavior, you're doing so in community with other people in your office. 
right? Sometimes as the person on the receiving end of the microaggression, you might not be the best person to check somebody, right? Like right. you are probably, you know, you might be the source of backlash, et cetera. So just be really real about your identity, how that impacts how you're seen and how that impacts how you're valued. And look for people who share your beliefs and preferably people who have more privilege who can do some of this intervening on your behalf if that's what you want, right? Yeah. I, I always advocate for if it's like a peer or something, just do it in the moment, make it quick, uh, focus on the action, you know, like we don't do that here, you know, don't make it personal about like a person like you're, you're a racist and you go down the whole rabbit hole of intent, but really focus on the impact, the action and quickly intervene. And if it's somebody who is a higher up, Think about strategically, how do you want to engage that person? Do you want to have, you know, as an ally, do you want to have a side conversation? Is this something that needs to be brought up um, to, to HR, knowing that HR fundamentally is probably not working in your best interest? Um, you know, those are some, those are some of the things that, that, that I would advise. Okay, so let's say that you are a white person in an organization that uh, occasionally makes these kinds of missteps and you would yeah. like to be able to use your privilege to stand up on behalf of people who might not, who, who might face more serious repercussions for speaking out yeah. than you would. Yeah. Other yeah. than like hanging a Black Lives Matter flag on the outside <laughs> of your cubicle, which I wouldn't, which would, would make me feel like I was trying to perform some sort of virtue signaling in an office space that it wouldn't be uncomfortable. Like, how do, how do you make your presence known? <laughs> like, how, yeah. how, do you, how do you say, yes, I am an ally in these, in these issues and you, we can talk about it? Well, I think first of all, that's why I always advise like working in community. You know, I'm gonna be real with you. If like I'm at work at my desk and a random white person came up to me and was like, just so you know, I'm your ally. I would yeah, Exactly, you away. would, <laughs> it would, would be right? bad. That would be threatening. <laughs> like, can you imagine? <laughs> Oh my God, that would be so, so funny, you know, Jess. You I'm came to my office you. and you were like, Julian, I just wanted to let you know, I am your white ally. Just come to God, me. Yeah. Hey, potential Our producer friend. Kat just suggested that they should take a knee in the middle of the office, maybe. <laughs> yeah. you know oh I my God. Like, we, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see it. Like, I don't like that yeah. doesn't help me. Right. Like, right. And so I, I do think, you know, I am of the opinion that actions speak louder than words. I do think white people start with, first of all, working on themselves. So if you're working on yourself and understanding your privilege, you understand like you don't go up to your, the black person the right. and tell them all about your allyship. But I also think working in community with people who are working on this, because in most spaces, particularly larger corporate spaces, but even like at a startup or something, there's somebody somewhere who's thinking about this thing and you are stronger if you connect with that person. And I also really advise people, and this is this is really hard for white people. You have to do the combination of decentering yourself, mm. right? It's not all about you and your journey to allyship and how much you love people who aren't white, right? You have to you have to be able to center the voices of marginalized people in the workspace and have yeah. them sort of, you know, inform what's what's happening without putting too much labor on people of color and without over relying on them to do the work that fundamentally I think still sits with white folks. So I, I you know, I, I, I say that and that it's tricky, but the first step I think is finding community. The second step I think is like, we already talked about intervening beating when we see stuff go down. I, um, I can't speak too much in detail because I don't want to get a person that I know and love and may also live with fired, but, um, <laughs> this person uh, has had a similar struggle and like, you know, has had to come to me 
um, at times and say, this is happening. Like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what to do. I don't, that's really messed up here. But like, you, you know, the first thing is like, well, you have to, it's really scary, but you have to use your privilege to interrupt who, like when, when that sort of bias action is happening, being mindful, this is also tricky, that if you're acting on behalf of someone, particularly somebody who's like marginalized, I always recommend getting consent first. Like don't yeah. ask them to tell you what to do, but if you're gonna like jump in and like cape for somebody, it's like a phrase we used to use in my youth, um, that, then you know you wanna make sure that they want you to do that and you're not putting them um, in harm's way. So I think walking the walk in terms of that is really important. And then also there are just things like there are you know systemic bias interruption behaviors that you can do to work uh, with people like as an individual you know you can be a sponsor you can bring yeah. somebody up whenever an opportunity comes up that's a person of color in your office and just say like this person does really good work they did xyz i think they would be great for this project why haven't we considered that you know if you're in a meeting and somebody's getting talked over which happens mm -hmm. all the time it happens yep. to me and i'm the ceo of a major company and people are so like not that black woman uh the the, the white guy um, like, like if you, if you're hearing that happen, you can like interrupt, redirect, amplify, and make sure that, um, that the black and brown folks in your organization are, are, are centered in that way, um, as well. You know, you can, I think there are, there are things that you can do that just as a, as a person help uplift other people while you're also working at a systemic level to change the culture, because the culture in a lot of ways does start with us, you know, what we permit what we allow, what we provide friction against, that impacts a culture. That's why people don't want individuals doing this work in companies. And it's not all individual. I also push back on that. A lot of this work is systemic, but as an individual, you can have a lot of influence just in walking that walk. So one of the things you said that I think about, especially as um, I think about, you know, our Jess and I, you know, we have like a, a real friendship where we're, we happen to be in the world together sometimes yeah. or yeah. in the before we times <laughs> we used to before pandemic um and one of the things that happens a lot and i appreciate and everyone's different so this is just my own personal experience but i do find mm -hmm. it helpful not even just in the workplace but in in any context because one of the things that she observes about my life is that it is very different from her life just yeah. walking around yeah. in the world um we're the same height which is helpful Yes, we're the um, same height, the same like clothing the same, size, take, the same age. We, like... we take the same space. We take up the same exactly. amount of space. We take up the same right? space. In the world. Mm -hmm. And yet when we walk through it, our experience is very different. So we're like walking side by yeah. side and people are like pushing me out of the, not, I mean, this is an exaggeration, but like pushing, elbowing me in the, me in the head. Well, you get cut in lines constantly. Or like I get constantly, constantly. all day long, oh, like all yeah. day, yeah. all day. Yeah. I'm like, like we're standing together that. and then somehow I'm two people in front of Zerlina and I'm like, what just happened? Yeah, yeah, I know that life. <laughs> and it's not because I'm not paying attention, it's because people don't see me. They don't see me. Right. And I'm yeah. not small. Right. Yeah. Um, Wait, the men, the men let me out of the elevator, which drives me nuts. Cause oh, I don't like oh, yeah, shuffling yeah, yeah. past a bunch That's of- That's the other one that we always used to laugh elevator. at. I hate that. But then, but then they don't let Zerlina out. <laughs> Right. No, I get so, so yeah, no, this is a, this is a whole thing um, yeah. that used to happen all the time. And I, I try to describe to just like this was happening and I was, and she was like, no, no. And so then she saw it and she was like, oh well, my I God. I was complaining about how the men would, would yeah. do this thing where like, they, they don't get out of the elevator. They shuffle to the side to let me out, which bothers me because then I have to, I have to touch them all as I walk past. And I don't like feeling like they're throwing their overcoats over a puddle for my petticoats not to get wet anyway. We're getting off the elevator. Just get off in the order that you got on. 
So I'm complaining about that to Zerlina and she's like, they've never let me off the elevator. Never know. That is feminism no, in that they, show. Sorry. They stand <laughs> there. They, like, it was like they stand right. there. They let all of the women off. Right. And then there's you. The, the people they perceive to be women. And then they walk out. And then I'm just left yeah. there last yeah. on the elevator. Like, ain't I a woman? I mean, literally every time I'm, I'm like Sojourner Truth in the back. <laughs> like, what is happening on this elevator? Um, and that's just a, just a small daily microaggression, which like every day on right. the way to the office, I'm reminded that I'm not seen as a woman like everyone else. And so, you're, right. you know, that's a great way to start your Monday. Um, <laughs> You know, not being the You're office me eliminates yes. <laughs> not being the office really eliminated a lot a of my daily space. stressors. Like I no, and and right, that's the thing. So so one of the things I was trying to say is that that's just one example. Um, that just yeah. you know she is with me in the world, so she's seeing it, and I appreciate it when. If somebody, this is a real story, a woman starts started yelling at me randomly when we were getting a bagel, and just yeah. like. Jess is like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like to the woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I get loud. That helps me. I like that. I yeah. like it when yeah. when I get cut online and a, a white person sees it and says, yeah. she was there. She was taking up space. She yeah. was waiting. She's next. You know, like I do yeah. appreciate when folks are speaking up. Do you do you like encourage that? I mean, as as far you know, the caveat being you're safe and and all of those different mm-hmm. things. But I do think that white people recognizing these microaggressions and speaking up, even if they don't know the person, it sometimes can be really helpful. Just being like, I see you to the person who yeah. is, the, you know, the target. Yeah, well, look, I think I, I fundamentally believe in the power of white people speaking up. I actually, this work does not get done if white people don't collectively right. say, like, stop cutting in front of black people. Right. Like right. it just doesn't doesn't happen. I mean, look at 2020 when all of a sudden a bunch of white people were like, hey, wait a second. No, you know, what I mean? <laughs> and all of a sudden everybody's like scrambling to figure out what to do. Right. Like that's how shit gets done. Right. Like that's how things happen um, in our in our society. So I think that that's right. But I think workplace is trickier than when you're standing in line. It's trickier when there's some random lady yelling at you over a bagel is trickier when you're in an elevator with people you don't you're not in relationship with right because your office is fundamentally a political uh environment where like there are power structures and power interests and where speaking up like that can have like a real impact right like because you like just as they're gonna go to your boss and be like stop doing that because that could have like a real impact so i think it like i said before it isn't one size um like, like, you know, like you were saying, you're one person, but it's not one size fits all. And I think people have to like really evaluate the context in which they're doing this in. I, you know, I always am in favor of speaking up. I think what we let go unaddressed really like helps form um, our culture and has like an outsized influence. And it's also where people of color like me disengage. Like I, I talk about that in my book, like when nobody does anything, that's when I shut down. And I'm like, oh, none of y'all, none of y'all. Oh, okay. I get, bet. I got it. Okay. Now I know where we are, you know? So, so I, I, I agree with that, but I think the question is like, how, right? Because like I said before, you want to avoid causing extra harm. You want to avoid having somebody tell you exactly what to do and doing that emotional labor while they're still recovering. If it's a peer, you can be more direct just as with anything in the office. If it's somebody who's a superior, particularly if they're not your superior, you have to be more strategic, right? And so the question becomes like, is this person, if this person's not a peer, 
they're, you know, have more power than you, are they going to be receptive to that? Are they going to likely engage in backlash and pushback? Will they target the person that's been harmed? You need to be aware of these situational dynamics. And if you're not aware of them, that's something that that's part of the self-work that you need to do to understand the impact of your actions on the marginalized people that, that you work with. So I agree, we should always strive to, to interrupt bias when we see it, but I also think we gotta be strategic, right? Like, it's not like we can just go on the basis of our feelings, you know, this yes. is like real political work that requires strategy. Oh, I love this. This is so, this is so helpful. Like, if you have done the work, you know what your next move is. If you haven't, then you're not making another move until you have. Like, that is... Yeah. <laughs> That's that's a really really solid rule as we navigate this very strange uh, this very strange moment in in workplace anxiety. Wyvon um, Hutchinson, but is thank it you. strange? Is it strange or is it just like like I just think people are sick of it. Like the workplace has always been racist, always yeah. right? Yes. Like yeah, you know. So it's like to me, it's like okay, this is just kind of like we're in this moment where people are like, you know what like what like we can't keep doing this in this way we're seeing really detrimental impacts in this in a way that we did it when we were when the U.S. was like predominantly white and not part of a global economy and didn't have you know a generation of like interconnected people you know right. all, all trying to make it work yep yeah, no, it, uh, you're 100% correct. The racism in the office place is not new. The idea that we are reevaluating every aspect of our work lives and seeing what yes. could and could not be improved is. And I love that like, yeah, yeah. this is a part of that conversation. It's yeah. not just about minimum wage, it's about respect and dignity at the work for, for everybody who is employed at that office. Um, Yvonne Hutchinson, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank We'd you love for to have you back. Me. We think about this I would all love the time. To be back. So. <laughs> We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 